so I have a couple things I'm supposed to remind you of. And last week when I talked about Good Friday, I mentioned that we have a gluten-free option. And some people took that to mean that we are feeding you. We're not feeding you. All right? uh, we're just doing something that uh, actually kind of includes bread. And I wanted you to know that if you are, like, I mean, I'm not talking, like, gluten-free because you're, like, all keto or something. But I'm talking gluten-free because your, like, head will swell up to the size of a balloon if you eat it. We're going to have you, the rest of you, you can get over it. Jesus died for your sins. You can handle it for one night. (laughs) Those are fighting words. If you have an allergy to gluten, okay, we will have a gluten-free option on Friday. But... I'm not, well, we're not feeding you, but there's that. Uh, The second thing is, did you guys kind of notice how last week we were all overgrown and this week it's all like mowed down and nice? And Rudy is one of the guys that goes here in first service and he mowed the entire thing. So if you know who Rudy Mansolin is, you can say, hey, thanks, Rudy, for bringing your tractor and your mower because now I can actually see where I'm going. My mom was sitting down here on the corner trying to pull out one time and she's like, I'm going to hit by a car because I can't see around all the weeds, but now she can actually see. And, I don't know why, I, keep, I just need to go, I keep rambling. Uh, but next week at Easter, uh, we're actually not going to still be in Ecclesiastes next week. We're going to take a break for Easter, which might be nice if you're inviting somebody to come with you. Uh, because I won't be like, this is meaningless, right? Well, we're going to do something kind of a little different for Easter, so it'll be a little fun and stuff like that. Uh, welcome to Elman, if you are new. Things aren't normally, this. well, I guess they're usually dis- disjointed. So anyway... Um, <laughs> There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes throughout the communion tables in the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some questions to talk about what we talk about today, some notes to remind you what we talk about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events and Uversion. We come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? It's Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, and it says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and a violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. Let's pray. Father, I ask that this morning you would teach us what it means to be a people who find our contentedness and our satisfaction in who you are first, that you would lead us and guide us into places where we find all that we are in all that you are, and that we would honor you by how we live out our lives, that you would gain great glory as we live in your joy, as we bring about your kingdom to this world by how we live. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is week 14. We are calling, if you haven't realized this, we're calling the entire series the Existential Hangover because if you ever get to a place in your life where you feel like you have it all figured out and you have everything you ever wanted, you're going to have to wake up the next day and still continue to live. So the word existential relates to existence, and eventually when you have all that, you end up in a place where you realize all the things that you thought you wanted don't actually satisfy you, and that's kind of the hangover part of that. And so as we go through Ecclesiastes, we see the book is not about us in a self-centered way. The book is trying to get us to look and see outside of ourselves, how we're supposed to live in this world in a way that trusts God first above everything. Because if we are ever to live as satisfied people in satisfied ways, it will start with our hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And hopefully other people will see how we live trusting Jesus and will want to follow him as well. Now Solomon has talked many times throughout Ecclesiastes of this idea of injustice. He's related it to many 
different things, and that we were a people who were designed to bring about justice as God's image bearers in this world. And so when we, it starts to look at a, as, as we have a people, we start to stand up for fairness around us, but fairness in ways that God calls us to, not always just cultural appropriation of fairness. We understand that everything in our world is meant to be reset because we see ourselves through the lens of who God calls us to be. Uh, We as a people, no matter what has kind of been done to us, we trust Jesus enough to live out in this world in a way that sees everything through what we would call the lens of the gospel, that we are able to offer the same grace to other people that we are ourselves have received. And this is because in our world, people are fickle. People will let us down, but Jesus never will. And so we need to uh, learn to live and build our lives on how Jesus sees us and what he says about us and not what other people say about us or what even we say about us, but when Jesus thinks about us as a people first. Because this will lead us to be a people who can offer that true hope in the world. Because again, we are looking outside of ourselves. And no matter what has happened to us, no matter where we've been, no matter what we think of our ourselves, Jesus reminds us that we are called to be his children. The apostle Paul says that we are new creations in Christ. And as God's children, we are precious in his sight. And again, when we build our satisfaction on others, we find dissatisfaction because only Jesus can maintain the weight of the expectation of the entire world. Jesus is the only one who knows how bad we are and yet completely redeems us anyway. And this is again why Solomon keeps coming back to all these ideas of the satisfaction must be found in God or our lives turn into meaningless messes under the sun. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy all of the longings that God has placed within us. And when we do trust our lives to Jesus, it doesn't mean that everything necessarily gets better, that we no longer experience injustice or death or loneliness or envy or being let down by friends. Again, what it means is we have a whole new way to look at the world around us. As I said, we see it through what we call the lens of the gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection, God's rescue of us. We begin to look at everything through this lens of hope. And so throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon has talked about these ideas of injustice and ideas of pleasure and work and worship. And today he's going to go into this place called Money. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, uh, but there's this thing that kind of makes a world go round, and, and it's called money. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We will actually deal with this idea of money over the next four times we look at uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, but this is kind of the foundation for it. So we're going to kind of take this meandering trek through what he's going through to lay the foundation for what comes next. And I think we have to come to a place where we learn to take Solomon's advice to heart that he has said before, which is better one handful with contentment than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Better to be content with God is placed in our hands and always looking and striving for more and more and more. And our world is one that encourages us to always try and get more, get that next thing. It's how everything is advertised to us. Buy this product. You will feel fulfilled. Have you tried our dish soap? If you use our dish soap, your spouse will love you. The world will be better. Your kids will be wonderful. It's how we market everything. And so we have to look at, again, what Christ has called us to in our lives and realize that sometimes in some places there are Christians, we will draw lines and and we will say things like, this is as far 
far as I want to go in places of work. Like, I don't need to work anymore. I don't need another advancement because I need to take care of my family and I need to spend time with my friends. I need to love the things that God has already given me. There are other times where we, we will work harder and we will give up something over here to work towards this thing we believe God's calling us towards. But we understand that Christ is central in all of it, that we're not looking for something to bring our satisfaction and our fulfillment. It's that we find that first in who Christ is, his acceptance of us. And that will do a lot to mitigate the fickleness of the world that is around us, understanding Christ's acceptance of us. As Solomon's counsel throughout Ecclesiastes is to push us to a place where we look to God for our satisfaction in life, because everything else around us will fail us, but God never does. And so that's where you kind of got to start when we get to today's passage, because it starts off kind of weird, but moves into some other places you're probably not going to like, but that's Solomon. So he's going to start off with this idea of class warfare. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So Solomon here is talking about money. And he says, in some places you will have these officials, and some are corrupt, in some places they may not be, but what the king wants to do is make sure everybody can actually get fed. What he's saying in a political sense is everything kind of rolls downhill. So let's talk about politics just for a minute. Not, this isn't a political sermon, by the way. I'm just saying, let's talk about this. How do you feel about politicians? That's how first service felt. Just dead silent, like, whatever I say is going to get me in trouble. Yeah. Consistently, over the last few decades, politicians rank as the lowest in trust and reliability. Uh, These are the bottom four. It is lobbyists, members of Congress, TV news reporters, and used car salesmen. Uh, we have a used car car salesman that goes to Element, so I always say, no offense, Phil Park. Okay, uh, but, but... But it's true. Politicians rip us off and then claim it's for our own benefit. Governments are filled with people who use their power to amass wealth and stupid taxes and kickbacks and privileges and all that. Part of the reason they do this is so after they leave office, people owe them and they can then become rich. Uh, Think about like Bernie Sanders, right? When he just ran for president the last time. He's like, you know, I grew up like this. Bernie Sanders is now a millionaire a couple times over after running for president. Think about something something as simple as maybe traffic, right? Uh, I know uh, I hate traffic. You probably hate traffic. It's like no one knows how to drive anymore. Santa Maria is not a big town, and yet it's bad. That's like I can't get anywhere. I'm not even talking about roundabouts. I'm just talking about straightaways. It's terrible. If I've got to drive down to L.A., and I know I've got to drive on the 405, I get road rage before I even get in the car because I know what's actually coming. And so the government says, well, we'll fix it, right? Well, how are they going to fix it? Raising taxes, that's what they do. A couple years ago, your registration fees went up three times. A few years ago when this happened, we recalled a governor over that, and we got the Terminator. But, you know, I I swear, I do not read the words DMV in the Constitution, but i got to pay it. Okay, so i got to pay it. Uh, Gas goes down 50 cents a gallon. California raises taxes, things we may not notice. And when we do notice, we say, hey, what's up with that? They say, oh, it's for the roads. Right, But then they don't spend it on the roads. They use it to build things like bullet trains, which is never going to get built, but a bunch of people are going to make money all around it. It's kind of what happens. Transportation is bad because people want money. It's kind of how Solomon talks about one official and a higher official, and everything kind of rolls downhill. You know how many organizations lobby in Sacramento about traffic? Upwards of 400. 
400. Everyone has something that benefits them and their constituents. And so you have to understand that when money and power is consolidated in a government, and by how societies function, it really has to be, and it can be a good thing at times, but if we ever long for reformation, we cannot hope in government because it's full of people, and people are sinful, and they are fallen. We vote, we be active, but understand until God comes and changes human hearts, we're just rotating one sinful person for another sinful person through offices and change will never come until people meet God. We just have to understand that. And so this is kind of what Solomon is trying to get us to see in regards to money and things rolling downhill, but it's more than just politicians and roads and bullet trains. It's the understanding that money has been used to divide people by various ideologies throughout the ages. And this is why I think he started with the idea of worship last week and then goes directly into money. Uh, each group, we tend to look at ourselves and whatever our financial condition is and see ourselves as the godly ones. And that everybody else who maybe is in a different strait than we are, well, they're not as godly as we are or there's something wrong with them or something like that. Some politicians will come in and then they will use this to try and get elected. Like some politicians will say, I'm going to raise taxes on the evil rich people who they steal and they overwork and they underpay their employees and I'm going to give it to the holy poor. I'm going to be like Robin Hood. Problem with Robin Hood, he's a thief. Okay, You're not supposed to steal, but that's what happens. On the other side comes someone and they will say, you know what? I, I'm here for the rich, and I'm going to cut social services for those lazy poor people because they're dumb and they're unproductive and they sit around all day watching TV. We're going to make them work for a living like the holy rich who work hard for their money. And it's essentially class warfare. That's what we're doing. We're pitting each side against another. We have a dividing line in our country that is separating people. And I'm going to talk about more over the next few weeks, not about that, but more of the distinctions that money kind of brings. But we have to understand in the scriptures... When it talks about money, money has nothing to do with your worth or your value before God. What the scriptures do is it differentiates in the scriptures between righteousness and unrighteousness. And you can find verses in the Bible that talk about rich people being righteous and poor people being righteous. But what we will, we will typically do is we will cherry pick verses to find something that agrees with us and how we see the world around us. If you don't know, uh, cherry picking came about uh, from picking cherries. Kind of like Good Friday is on Good Friday. Uh, but, but cherries are kind of small, and they've got to pick off all these trees. And typically when people go to marketplaces, they would have all these boxes of the cherries they picked, but they'd put out the best-looking ones in front of them. So people would go, oh, wow, you have great cherries. I'll buy a box of your cherries. And you get home, it's like, that wasn't like the ones I saw. It's called cherry-picking, okay? So everybody sees what the best. We do this and look for verses in the Bible that reinforce what we want to believe. And typically when people have more money, they look at verses about the godly being rich and when people are poor they tend to look at people uh, verses about you know the poor being godly and no one realizes we're all wicked and the issue is jesus okay that's really what it is money makes our world go round Uh, our entire world focuses on it more than anything else we hold it so closely to ourselves we don't want anybody to take it or look at how much we have or ask us questions over it like this is the crazy thing i could ask you about anything in your life i could ask you about your job your home your marriage your kids but if i ask you about money people are like why are you asking my about my money what he's a preacher he just wants my wallet and people kind of freak out about stuff like that it's it's really kind of strange and it's it's absurd how deeply money is ingrained and holds on to us. And this has really kind of always been the case. 
We are a people who look around the world and think that people who are satisfied are those who have just a little bit more than we do. That's the people who I find have satisfaction. If I could just be like that, well, then I would be satisfied. And I told you that how we decide typically if we have enough in our lives is we look at those around us and we determine our lives based upon their lifestyle and think, well, I'm not satisfied because I don't have that lifestyle. And Solomon says it's all meaningless. In chapter 5, verse 10, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity, meaning meaningless and it's dumb. Coming right back out of the verses of higher official, higher official, higher official. Again, it's not just them that do this. Everybody does this. And if you, he who is, loves money will never be satisfied with money. It, it doesn't say that you shouldn't have money. It doesn't say you shouldn't use money. It says don't love it. 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. If you love it, you are never going to have enough. And so the issue in regard with money that Psalm goes to is worship and righteousness versus unrighteousness. So many people spend so much of their time trying to get a little more rather than enjoying what God has already given us now. Uh, last year, bankruptcy was up 7.4%. Uh, the average American married and unmarried, 5800 versus $14,000 of credit card debt. That's not like anything else. That's just credit card debt. And so the issue of money, it's an issue with our hearts. Money is an indicator of what we love. What do you spend your money and your effort trying to get a hold of? It's like a gauge on a dashboard. And we typically look at our income in our lives and we decide based on that if we are content. And we say, well, I don't feel content. And that's really kind of interesting because feeling content is really quite elusive. Uh, you may have a certain amount of money and you feel like, well, if I just had that amount of money, if I had that job or if I just got this raise, well, then I would be content because then I would be at that place where I'd feel content or rich. Then maybe one day in your life you do make that amount of money. And when you do, do you feel content? Typically, no. Right? Because, oh, I just need a little bit more. We typically always rise to the level of our income. I told you this a few years ago. Fidelity did this study about five years ago where they asked 1,000 millionaires, do you feel content? Do you feel rich? And I don't know about you, but growing up as a kid, when I heard a million bucks, that was like the stratosphere of money, right? It's, it's like you're playing Monopoly. You get all the houses and all the money, and you got the little monocle and the mustache. You're blah, right? You, you've made it. You got the million dollars. We had this show called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And I'm like, I do, right? That I, I want that, me. But it's crazy is that people in this survey had an average financial net worth of $3.5 million. 40% of them said, I don't feel content. I don't feel rich. I don't know who the rich person is, but it's not me. In fact, on average, the response was if you had $7.5 million, well, then you'd be content and rich. Now, can you imagine growing up as a kid and someone saying, well, you know, if you have $7 million, you know, you're not rich yet, but 7.5, well, that's it. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, Who do you think are the ones who don't think having $7.5 million would make you rich? Those who have $7.5 million. Exactly, exactly. And that's what Solomon says. There's something going on underneath all of this, and it's an issue of our hearts, this this satisfaction under the sun. In our minds, being rich and having enough has the connotation and the meaning that we are content somehow, that that it's not just simply about success, it's about feeling successful, like you feel like you have enough. We don't simply feel content. We don't 
feel successful. We don't feel secure, so we don't feel like we have enough. Therefore, we must not actually be rich. We must not have what we want to be content under the sun. And we are all defining our identities by our own standards, so we focus on finding and acquiring and trying to get more. In 1514, Renaissance painter Quentin Massey paints this work of art called The Moneylender and His Wife. Here's this painting, okay? Now, it confronts us with the idea of, of money. The moneylender is at home. He's got a pile of money in front of him, and he's got this scale, and he's assessing each coin because at that point, the weight of your coin is really the value of that coin, so he's weighing them. But your eye is also supposed to be drawn to the woman sitting next to him, who is his wife, and she's going through pages in a Bible that was bought for her by her wealthy husband. At this point, the printing press had just come out, so Bibles were very expensive, and so she had a Bible. She's having devotions, learning about God, or she's supposed to be, but what is she distracted by? The money, right, in her husband's hand. So she's turning the page in her Bible while her whole figure is turning over and gazing at the money in her husband's hand. She's not captivated by God's word. She's captivated by the money, which he is focused on as well. I love how older painters put so much stuff into their their paintings. And this is what Solomon is after. Now, Massey painted this uh, painting to to make a point. He lived in a city called Antwerp. At the time, Antwerp was the world center for business and trade. But Massey is showing how easily money, comfort, more, not being content can pull our souls away from finding their satisfaction in who God is. It's a tension that he knew that we all feel. Solomon goes on, chapter 5, verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Again, what he's saying is you're going to rise to whatever level of income you get. You're going to rise to that and still feel like you never have enough. And if you get to a place where you have more than somebody else, someone's going to look at you and think you have more than them, and they will some, find some way to try and take it from you, whether it's through taxes or your deadbeat relatives or uh, spouses who like to buy electronics, like this guy right here, right? There should be a proverb that says it's better to be, it's, it's better to be poor with a lovely coupon-clipping spouse than to marry one that is never satisfied. It really should. Like one person I heard used to say, uh, you need to have like a, like a Gilligan's Island attitude. There's two types of ladies you can marry, the ginger or the Marianne. Marry the Marianne, which I did. <laughs> My wife's name is Marianne, by the way, in case you didn't know. So. <laughs> 5.10, he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And 5.11, when goods increase, they increase those who eat them. Let me see if I can help you to understand in our vernacular with this. Um, how many actors athletes, rock stars, right? They, they make it, they get big, and then they get assistance and an entourage, like every single one of them do. And then they have to maintain a level of enough income to feed all of those mouths. It's like years ago, Mike Tyson, you know, best boxer in the world, and yet now he's bankrupt. They like can't spell bankruptcy, but he can sure file for bankruptcy, right? He used to get $10 million a fight, $10 million a fight, and in the end, everybody takes from him, from attorneys to accountants to Don King. And there's kind of review from Solomon that, that people who are there who say they're going to guard your money, they, they really don't because they will get jealous. And when you think ha- you have enough, you're never really going to, quote, unquote, have enough. You never get to a place where you feel satisfied when our lives are focused on money. And this is why throughout the scriptures, God continually reminds us to be a people who are generous. So money isn't what is controlling our hearts and our lives. And when Jesus talks about money, he relates the whole idea to treasure. What do you treasure? 
Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Jesus is not saying you can't have things. He's not saying that at all. But what he's saying is, under the sun, when temporary things get a hold of your heart, it's always going to leave you dissatisfied, just like Solomon says. Lay it for yourselves, treasures where things are eternal. Learn how to not let all these temporary things lay hold of your heart and your life. Like when God makes the world, all the way back in Genesis 1, he tells mankind, steward my creation. I'm going to put it under your dominion. Have responsibility for all of it. And we're told in Genesis 1 that God gives every seed-bearing plant, every fruit-bearing tree. He gives it to be under our control. Again, this is the word dominion that the scripture uses. Now, if you possess or have dominion over something, you have say over how that thing is going to be used. We have say over like uh, what food we will eat and how much of that food we will eat and when we will consume it. Uh, We have say over our stuff, who we loan it to, who we don't loan it to, how we will use it. You have say over your car, if it's not a lease, uh, you know, how many miles you will drive it, uh, what you will run it into, (laughs) uh, what you will pray through the speakers that are in it. And this goes for from clothes to tools to effort to energy and to the money that God has placed underneath us. This idea of dominion and possession is part of our kingdom. And the kingdom that God gives us jurisdiction over starts with our bodies, and it can grow outward from there. And we were made to be a people who reign and rule and influence the world for good under the creativity of the God who has rescued and saved us. And this is why the ideas of possession and dominion and money are so important to our identity and destiny. And God's not going to remove them because they're not bad. And they're not something to feel guilty over if you, if you have something in the existence of or even have a desire to work for something a little bit more. Possession is fundamental, but possession is the extension of our little kingdom. And theologically, we're supposed to steward it, not be mastered by it to steward it well. And this is why it's important that we were made to be a people to possess and reign under the reign and the goodness of God in obedience to Him in ways that enhance the world around us, that bring His kingdom to earth by how we live and interact. And again, this is why I think Solomon goes from worship to money to help us to understand who God is and what He's calling us into. We were not made to be possessed by things, but to possess things and use them correctly. We were made to be a people who create and possess and delight in a spirit of generosity and gratitude that enhances the world under God's loving rule. That's who we're meant to be. And this is kind of what dominion and possession is all about, but sin enters the picture. And what does sin do in the world? Sin makes us want to clutch and hoard and and shut God out and be greedy and be self-deceived and say, well, you know, I'm not content because I don't have enough. And therefore, I don't have to really think about other people. I just have to think about myself because I don't have enough. And so I just got to look at me. Now, many people think that if they just had a little bit more, then they'd be more generous. Do you know research does not bear that out? It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, Christian Smith documents people who make $25,000 or less a year will give 4.2% of their income away. Less than $25,000, 4.2% of their income. Now imagine you made $25,000 a year. Some of you are like, yeah! And some of you are like, ugh, okay, but okay, $25,000 a year. And then someone comes up to you and says, tomorrow you're going to start making $100,000 a year, four times as much, right? Your first thought would be like, that's amazing, man. I'll live on 50 and I'll give 50 away. That'd be great. That's not typically how it bears out. In studies, what they show is that people who make $100,000 a year, four times as much, give on average of 2.7% of their income away. 
just 2.7%. Four times as much, but giving less percentage-wise. Now, that doesn't mean it's true in every individual case, but the idea that more money will make you more generous is an illusion because it's not about the money. It's about our hearts, and it's about what our hearts are drawn towards. And when money and stuff owns us, we'll come up with all sorts of reasons to center it upon ourselves. We'll judge other people who have more. We'll judge other people who have less. It's a position that never leads to freedom. It doesn't. It leads to bondage, and Solomon says it is meaningless. And so Solomon's simple brilliance, I think, is how he ends this little section. Again, this is the foundation of where we're going over the next few weeks, so buckle up. Um, Ecclesiastes 5.12, Solomon says, Sweet is the sleep of of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, I don't know if you have ever had a job or worked at something where you worked hard all day long and you got home and you just slept the sleep of the dead, right? It's like, oh, I am just because you're so tired and it felt so good. Like, it, it talks about someone who works hard and well and doesn't defraud and doesn't lie so you don't go to bed having to remember all these lies you told during the day or all these different things that you did. You sleep well because your work was honorable. And you trusted God. Then Solomon contrasts that with the rich. And that's not class warfare rich. What he's talking about here is not satisfied rich. I don't have enough. He said those people need like an Ambien or Soma to go to sleep at night because they're never restful. They feel like, oh, my work is never done because I don't have enough and I got to get more. And I got to, their eye is always on the coin and the moneylender's hand and not on the source of life as found in the scriptures who is Jesus. And, and again, this is kind of the foundation where I think where Solomon is starting to go towards as he starts to talk about money, and I, and I hope it makes sense. But Solomon, a few thousand years ago, puts his finger squarely on the human condition and problem, that we are not satisfied because our lives are not first found in Jesus. And again, that's something Quentin Massey put into his painting. Again, here's the painting again, in the, right here in the little corner. So there, there's the painting again, husband and his wife turned away from God to focus on the coins. But in the center of that table, there's this little mirror. Here's a close-up picture of the mirror. And this mirror is reflecting a scene that's outside of the painting. It's looking outside, and you see these dark lines of a window frame. And the window frame kind of forms this cross. But here's another close-up, a second one. If you look even closer, there's a figure holding onto the cross. And this isn't like some scary Annabelle-type movie, like, oh, who's that? It's a ghost! That's, artist friends will tell you that's Quentin Massey. This is, he paints himself into his own painting. It's a self-portrait, and it's meant to say two things. Number one, it's meant to be a reminder not to look to money to give us satisfaction, but to look to and cling to the cross where Jesus gave his life for us and our sins and our greed of never having enough. And secondly, it's like a prayer where Massey is saying, don't let me or the people around me ever become enthralled with anything but you. It's like a prayer for people. And again, Massey City was a center for banking and business in the world. And he sees what it's doing to all of these people around him. And this is his way of praying for them and reminding them to hold more tightly to Jesus than our money. To remember that it is Jesus who actually holds us tightly. That in him we would find our satisfaction and our hope. See, this is the the good news of the gospel. That Jesus has come to remind us of our calling and hope. That his death and resurrection... Seeing everything through the lens of the gospel, we understand that he is the one who sets us free from our bondage to envy and greed and perpetual dissatisfaction. What he does by coming to rescue us is he resets our focus where it is meant to be upon him. But that comes back to the understanding of seeing everything in the world through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of his rescue of us. Because when we see it through that, that's how we begin to really see clearly. 
I mean, if you don't, if you don't understand this, in our world today, I, things get their hooks in us so easily. I, I know a couple people who ended up declaring bankruptcy, not that I recommend that for you, uh, but they said when they got to a place where they lost everything, they said they became so free. It's like I didn't have all this stuff over me anymore. I was trying so hard to grasp. And again, I don't recommend that for you. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's the idea, this is what Jesus wants to bring. Bankruptcy shouldn't be the thing that brings that for you. It should be us trusting in Jesus for what he has done to rescue us, to bring us to a place where we see things correctly through that lens. And I don't know where you're at today. Maybe, maybe you've been working really hard to get more stuff and more things and accumulate more so you feel better about yourself. And what Jesus says is those things are going to put their hooks in you. Solomon says it's all meaningless. And he comes to set us free so we would worship and love and serve him first. And this is what communion is meant to do for us, where you break the cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. And you dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It's meant to remind us of his body that was broken and his blood that was shed so our focus would be reset to where it is supposed to be, that we'd be able to see things clearly because we have laid our lives down at the foot of the cross and trusted him for what he brings. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to buy you to take communion today and lay down whatever has its hooks in you there today. If you need prayer, there's going to be some deacons in the back. And again, if you, if you have something that you feel like you just can't get rid of or your life is consumed with this thing that is not Jesus, they'd love to pray with you about that. We all must become a people in our lives, I think, who understand the gospel better, God's rescue of us, because only be seeing things through the lens of that gospel will we ever make sense of the world that is around us. And everything that calls us towards everything that isn't Jesus. And we, we must be a people who see who Jesus is first above all things. His rescue of us, his change of our own hearts, his breaking the chains and of us that have held us bondage to all these different things around us. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, none of us have it all perfect and right, right? But can you imagine... Walking through your life and not being bound to anything but Christ himself. Can you imagine the freedom that that would bring? Not being bound to anxiety. Not being bound to what other people think about you. Not being bound to stuff and money and, your, and just being able to walk through this life trusting what Christ has said about you first. That would simply be amazing. And you know what? That's understanding and seeing the world through the lens of the gospel. That's, um, that's understanding what the results of the gospel can bring, true freedom in our lives. And that's what God calls us to. And so if you need prayer, they would love to pray with you. Um, it's kind of funny at the end of this message, there are offering boxes next to all the doors. <laughs> Element doesn't pass a plate, okay? It's always meant to re- be a response to what God has done. And that's why we don't pass a plate. Uh, that's why the offering boxes are where they are. Um, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. Uh, there is some snacks and stuff outside. I invite you to grab something to eat, maybe meet some other people, take some sermon notes, and sit down this week and maybe begin to talk about this. Do you have anybody in your life that you trust enough to talk about your finances, you know, other than your spouse or your accountant? <laughs> that assumes you have some money if you have an accountant. Um, <laughs> but do you have anybody that, that even knows where you're at? Because most of us, that's the one thing. I was talking to somebody after first service, and they said, that's really funny because I will talk to anybody about anything, but when it comes to my finances, it's like, we don't talk about it. And it's, it's so interesting because, because it does have our hooks, their hooks so deeply inside of us. And so I would encourage you to find people in your life that you can trust to talk to. I mean, one of the reasons 
that God places us into community together is so that we could walk this life together. Yes, God saves us individually as people, but God, through His Spirit, places us into His body, into His family, so we would walk alongside one another, that we would be able to walk with each other through these places of bondage and help each other to see things through the lens of the gospel when we don't see clearly enough on our own. So we can remind one another of the great grace that God has bestowed upon us. So let's do that for one another. So hopefully you meet some people this week and talk about some of this stuff. Um, God is good. God is good. And I love that he sets us free. And the bass is starting to play. Are you telling me? Is, I, we're like, at, we're like, like at the end of the Oscars. Get off. You're talking too long. Okay. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, I want to thank you so much for being gracious and good to us that you have come to set us free and to rescue us that you break the chains that so hold us down to all of these things around us. And you call us back into life with you. And I ask that you would take us as a people and have us be able to begin to see the world around us through the lens of the gospel. That we would begin to understand the things around us through what you have done. That we would see clearly because you are the one who has set us free that you are the one who is constantly pulling the calluses off of our heart and off of our life so that we can be tender to who you are and tender to the things that you show around us. We ask that as your spirit speaks and blows across our hearts that we would be attentive and that we would listen and that all the things in our lives that wants to get their hooks so deeply within us, you would have us see those. And you'd have us see how the results of the gospel and the goodness of what you have done is pulling out and removing all of those hooks so we can live free lives. And so teach us not to be a people who run headlong back into bondage, but run headlong into relationship with you and love you back because you have first loved us. Teach us to live out in this world the great displays of freedom that you have so placed upon us. Teach us to be a generous people, a hopeful people, a people who find all that we are in you. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.